0: Hi, this is Natalie Wires with Digital River. Welcome to a special edition of Commerce Connect, an eight episode series that we're calling Commerce Passport. Throughout the next few months, we'll take you on a journey to boost your global e-commerce strategy and learn how to gain an onshore advantage. Listen in as some of the top experts in the field share their insights on what it takes to find global e-commerce success.
1: Hi everyone. I'm Mike French, vice president of partnerships at Digital River. Welcome to this portion of our Commerce Passport series. Today, we delve into navigating regulatory compliance. This is the stuff that keeps e-commerce brands up at night. The web of compliance regulations that vary from country to country and region to region. We've assembled a team of experts to help get you through it. But first, I wanna thank our promotional partner for this event, Born Group. Connecting creative content and commerce, Born Group, a TechM company is an award-winning global agency that helps brands with digital transformation. So onto our panel, and let's start with Keith Pires. Keith is a senior vice president at Born Group, an industry leader in digital transformation for B2B, B2C, and D2C clients across industry sectors. Keith is responsible for major accounts and global strategic partnerships, and he frequently works with Born clients on business strategy development. Keith's 20-plus years of experience have taken him around the world with posts in the U.S., Canada, Europe, and wow, Keith, luckily, I guess, the Caribbean. <laughs> if you could introduce yourself.
2: Sure. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, my my name is Keith Curies. It's a, it's a pleasure uh, to be speaking with uh, with you today. Um, I am the Senior Vice President here at Bourne based in our Manhattan office, and I sit within the uh, uh, Digital Transformation Group, and I work with companies... Um, across uh, almost all sectors, um, and um, with all major uh, technology partners uh, of Bourne, uh, so I get exposed to a lot of different um, uh, customer needs uh, in uh, a lot of different uh, areas.
1: Yeah, it's it's great. I'm looking forward to to hearing more. Uh, especially, we've got to come back to that uh, that that post in the in the Caribbean. Um, (laughs) Maggie Lassick, so Maggie is Privacy and Cybersecurity Counsel for Polaris, Uh, and I think a lot of people know Polaris uh, for making kind of their outdoor equipment, uh, but they're involved in in a whole lot of different, uh, a whole lot of different segments. Uh, Maggie has a background in both law and economics. She's been a law clerk at the U.S. Court of Appeals 6th District and an attorney with the Federal Trade Commission on Marketing Practices and Privacy. Maggie also worked at 3M before taking your current position at Polaris, a Minnesota-based company with iconic brands dedicated to outdoor adventure. So that's uh, interesting, Maggie. It sounds like you've been kind of on both sides of the table here.
0: Thanks Mike and thanks everyone for having me. Um, Yes, and I definitely enjoy being on this side of the table more. I like working as a teammate with businesses to help them accomplish their goals and be kind of a partner in the yes but or the yes person, not the no police. And so I like helping preventing companies from being in trouble and not either investigating them for being in trouble or helping defend them when they are in trouble.
1: I like that. I like that the the yes and yes but um, and not the no police. Uh, I'm gonna remember that next time I have to talk to Digital Rivers Chief Compliance Person, Julie Ray. Uh, Julie is the Senior Director of Compliance at Digital River. She's responsible for leading the compliance team at DR and global trade compliance, privacy, security, consumer protection, payments and risk, and audits and controls. Uh, She's held many corporate legal and compliance roles over the last 15 years, including privacy and security counsel for Lyft Brands, Great Clips, Julie also has a certificate in privacy and, and cybersecurity, and is a certified information privacy professional recognized by the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Uh, Julie, if you could introduce yourself.
3: Thanks, Mike. I'm Julie Ray, and like Mike said, um, sometimes I am the no police, but um, but I do prefer to be uh, to be known as a collaborator within our company with. Uh, with our, uh, our business and sales teams to help enable sales within numerous countries and all different kinds of, of products that we sell. So um, I will remember Maggie's Maggie's yes <laughs> yes but.
1: No, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot, Julie. And of course, I tease with you, it's, it's only the terrible ideas that you say no to. It's a nice segue because we get into this idea of enabling sales, right? And, you know, one of the challenges that that folks who have responsibility for revenue deal with is, you know, how can I get into a new market, right? It, it isn't even necessarily a, a particular sale or a particular transaction. It's, hey, look, it looks like we've got a dressable market in, you know, the U.S., for, for example, if I'm not a U.S.-based company. So... Uh, Keith, you know, I'd, I'd like to start with you on that. You know, where are the markets, and, and obviously, Bourne works with a with a whole bunch of different clients. And as you mentioned, uh, you've worked a lot across a lot of different segments, physical and digital. And um, but where are the clients looking to kind of enter? Uh, the clients that you work with, and and how do you how do you help them think about working through or understanding kind of the the regulatory profile uh, of those markets?
2: Sure. Thanks, Mike. So l- let me start Let me start by saying that, um, um, you know, we live in unique times. And um, what we're seeing is every day, you know, we, we see, you know, the, the financial re- reports. I think today was Best Buy, 240% e-commerce growth. Target was last week, Walmart, et cetera. You're seeing this tremendous acceleration of trends that were taking place maybe on a multi-year timescale now happening within months. So, Companies have realized, brands, retailers, um, uh, manufacturers have, retail, uh, uh, have realized that e-commerce, online, um, digital channels are not just an opportunity but a, a, a lifeline, um, and just tremendous uh, growth. And consumers, the the status quo is broken, you know, it was shattered with COVID. So people are willing. Just statistically, we're, we're, you know, people are um, uh, statistically more apt today to try new brands. So they're shifting uh, loyalty, to trying new trend uh, transactions. Um, the financial technology um, that exists to do transactions now have made it kind of commonplace to do the size of transactions for say a car, or in, in some cases, even a home, much more commonplace than there were a few years ago. So all the barriers have, really collapse, and we see this incredible momentum acceleration towards um, expanding digital. So what that's meant for our company is probably the bus- we're at the busiest time we've ever seen in our firm's history, uh, and companies coming to us and saying, help us expand our footprint internationally, help us grow our digital channel. Um, manufacturers saying, I-, I want, we want to create a direct-to-consumer uh, channel right now. We want to, or we want to enable our uh, business to business customers to transact with us uh, more easily, rapidly, um, uh, et cetera. So it, it really is coming from every diff- every direction in, in this, um, uh, at this point in time that companies are looking to invest um, and take a very, very uh, aggressive posture with, uh, with their digital channels.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting. You mentioned how you know so many other uh, kind of barriers to market entry or barriers to expansion. Um, a lot of the friction has kind of come out of those, or a lot of them have been moved yeah. out of the way. When you think about you know availability of uh, different service providers and and platforms, but the the regulations, the, those are the ones that uh, they they seem to be getting harder or creating you know even even bigger barriers.
2: Well, absolutely, and it's and it's not uniform. We have a very uneven landscape. So, um, it, born as worked, I've worked with companies um, that were um, in a high regulatory um, um, jurisdiction—not jurisdiction, but uh, regulatory environment. I guess is a better way to put it. Um, be it with consumer products or whatnot, but now the regulatory. Um, um, concerns or, and, 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 um, and issues that you have to deal with are much more broad. So uh, GDPR in Europe, CCPA um, in, um, in California, um, the Great Firewall in, in China, how to deal with all of these uh, different um, overlapping um, uh, concerns and, uh, and guidelines. It comes up in all of our conversations uh, that we have with, with, uh, with corporations trying to expand.
1: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and Julie, I'd like to go to you. Uh, you know, Keith mentioned some things about, you know, depending on kind of different products, right, and, and what a company is selling, there, there can be some different regulatory concerns or regulatory rules that, that apply. Uh, are there some markets, Julie, where, say, selling digital or software or a subscription, um, you know, it has different regulations applied to it than, than physical goods? Could you give some examples there?
3: Sure, I mean, so generally, it is a little bit more complex selling physical goods into com- into countries. Um, it's it's a mix of export, import, do customs and duties that that are real challenges for uh, for companies because there is such a such a great mix. Um, but there certainly are um, regulations and laws that apply to just online e-commerce sales themselves right in their their consumer protection for instance um, india has passed some rules and regulations aimed at how businesses are conducting e-commerce within the country so if you're doing if you don't have a base in india but you're doing business there there can be a levy of up to two percent of uh sales made by foreign e-commerce country companies one uh one regulation that, uh, that you might want to think about. Uh, another is that sellers of goods in Brazil, for instance, have to comply with Brazil's consumer defense code. And it's one of the strictest and strongest consumer um, protection laws in the world. So if you're gonna do business in Brazil in any way, whether it's digital or physical, you have to find yourself um, very familiar with those laws as well.
1: Yeah, and uh, if I'm right, Brazil has a lot of, puts a lot of requirements on on merchants or on online sellers to uh, to report detailed sales activity in, in almost real time,
3: is, is that right? That is correct, and that's one of the reasons why it is so challenging to sell into Brazil.
1: Yeah, it's, it seems like, you know, it's an exciting market. Uh, Almost anybody you talk to talks about getting into Latin America and, and into Brazil, but there, there are definitely some, some real barriers there. Maggie, when you think about data privacy and you think about security, um, are there some markets that, that, that are harder than others? Are there some that, that are easier? Are there some that you know, you get into this one and, and you're able to get this one right, you, you know, you're gonna be able to get into this other one? Um, what, what's your experience there?
0: And I think on the privacy side right now, right Europe would probably be the the gold standard the gold standard that everybody is you know basing other comprehensive laws off of, right. So I would use Europe as kind of the hard the hard side on the privacy side not that Situations anything is insurmountable, it's just more stringent requirements and more work there to do it. And then, probably on the opposite end of the spectrum, though it's you know starting to change a little bit, would be the US would probably be the easier side on a privacy standpoint, right? Because we don't have a comprehensive federal privacy law. So, if you're not in a sector where you have a sector specific law like HIPAA for example, then for the most part, our requirements are going to be lower. Like for instance, with opt out email marketing versus opt in in most countries, not having a countrywide cookie banner type requirement, things like that. And then on the security side, I think China, Keith, you used the the great firewall, right phrase. I think China is the one to really pay attention to and watch as that's evolving. And that's, you know, more about It's about more than just your security localization and things like that to be watching out for with respect to protecting your intellectual property there. So I think, like I said, so on the privacy side, GDPR and anything based on GDPR that, so where most of these laws are coming in are based on GDPR. So if you have that foundation, then it'll help you with other countries like, for instance, Brazil coming into effect and becoming enforceable next year.
2: And if I can expand on that, Maggie, that's a great point. You know, for example, with the Great Firewall, it's a, a requirement that you actually have your physical servers within China itself. So there's, a, there's actually a, a technology um, um, directive, if you will, entering into that market. So let's say you have two... Uh, let's me, let's say you have a you know a cloud-based uh, commerce system. Um, you now have to have a physical instance within you know the great within the, the constraints of the Great Firewall. So there's a real strong technology implication as well that you have to consider when you're expanding, for example, in that particular market.
1: Yeah, it's that, that's a really good point, Keith. When I, I think about the the you know the way everything has kind of gone, you know, to the cloud and virtual. And now, you know, some of these regulations and laws are, are requiring that, that the data is physically housed uh, in yes. the country or in the region. And is that, Maggie, something that, that you see or you're seeing in, in other countries as well, in Europe or uh, in other parts of the world? Is that an emerging requirement?
0: Oh, I think that's a tough one to answer because that's going to depend on this recent SHREMS judgment, I think in part, which isn't quite a localization requirement, but it's really called into question the requirements that companies need to meet for transferring data outside of that European economic area. And it's so basically it's a lot of influx right now. I think it's going to take several years, but really the underlying issue there is about us surveillance laws versus European privacy laws. And those are things that companies can't solve on their own. So I think there's a lot, so there's risk there. I don't think for your everyday company, it's high enforcement risk anytime in the near future, but we all need to be paying attention to how to address and mitigate that risk in practice and see what the regulators are gonna come up with. And then Russia, you have a localization law, but that's where you just have to keep the data locally and then you can have a copy outside of it. So there is some move, you know, some of that, I don't think it, that qualifies enough to be a trend, but the Srems issue will be one that's interesting to see how that evolves.
1: Could you talk about that a little bit more? I mean, there might be some folks in the audience who, you know, they're, they're not aware of the case, or they don't understand exactly what's in play. What's what's creating kind of the issue there? What kind of uncertainty is it creating?
0: Um, yeah, so what happened was, this is an individual, his name is Max Schrems. He's brought several cases against against Facebook and how they transfer data, out, his, his personal data, outside of the EU. So it started years ago with when the U.S. safe harbor was invalidated and that was a mechanism through the Department of Commerce where companies can get certified and that's one of these lawful methods to transfer data outside of the European economic area. That was replaced with the privacy shield which was a bit more stringent but again still doesn't solve this problem of the tension between surveillance laws and European privacy laws because companies can't really, a certification can't really do that. So then he brought a similar action regarding the privacy shield and another method called the standard contractual clauses, which is the method that most, I would say most companies use. And so the European court of justice came down with a decision last month that invalidated the privacy shield. So if that was your only method for transfer, you have an immediate risk there of dealing with that. But then for those of us who use the standard contractual clauses, they really called those into question in practice. So in theory, they're legitimate, but in practice it requires companies to do diligence on the surveillance issue. And so that just creates some practical uncertainty of, I think most of us think if that were come, would come into question, they would likely strike that down to in practice as applied. And so we have to figure out how to mitigate that risk of dealing with that. And so that's why it hits most companies because of that implication on the standard contractual
1: clauses. Wow. That's um, <laughs> that's interesting, and the, the way that you put it about you know these these laws or these regulations that are put in place around things like surveillance, uh, obviously with one interest or intent in mind, and then others about privacy and the interest and intent there, and and seeing them kind of run into each other, <laughs> kind of at this point of international trade, um, where does where do things like this fall into? Uh, the the right to be forgotten, and, and Julie, may, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. You know, we hear that terminology. You know, the right to be forgotten. You know, I, it ought to be possible for me to to have you know have a company, you know, get rid of my data, or you know, uh, shouldn't be able to retain records of me. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what that is? What laws is is that a part of, and 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 what are companies doing to respond to it?
3: So at Digital River, uh, you know, we obviously are, are a global company, so we put uh, we put systems and processes in place when GDPR went into effect in May of 2018, and um, and that really is to not only the right to be forgotten under GDPR, but the right for data portability, the right to erasure, or the right to correct information, um, and. And so forth. So really, it's the data subjects' access rights to their data that uh, that companies need to put in place. And so, Digital River has um, has systems and processes and people in place to manage those requests as they come in. And under the CCPA, California residents also have rights that are similar to those that uh, that EU citizens have. And under Brazil's new data privacy law, they, as Maggie mentioned before, prior in in our, uh, in our webcast, um, you know, they'll have the same similar, uh, similar rights, although they might have a little bit shorter timeframe to meet those. So again, it's really about people and processes being able to manage those requests. Maggie?
0: Can I add something too here? I, I echo everything Julie said. I also just want to raise something here. I think a lot of times people have the misconception that this erasure right or right to be forgotten is absolute. And it's not. I mean, you you don't just disappear from the earth if, you know, you, there's something that you don't like generally. And companies, you need to maintain documents and data for their legal obligations and things like that. So I just want to just make sure everybody understands that that right is not is not absolute by any means. Generally under these laws, the right to access data is pretty darn broad, but that right to deletion is usually much more narrow. So I just wanted to add that point too, in case folks listening you know, thought that right was absolute.
1: No, no, that's that's a really good point. And I mean, you, you'd certainly think, I remember first learning about it myself, at least to the extent that I learned about it and thought to myself, well, how could you get rid of that data altogether? You have to hold on to some of it, or you have to hold on to it in in some fashion, whether it's for your your, your legal records or your financial records or or what have you. Um, And I think that kind of brings us back to this idea of uh, something you brought up earlier, Keith, around consent um, and around the importance of consent in the collection of data uh, and in how we go about collecting data. I'd love to come back to you on that. could Could you talk some more about where this plays in and and how you know uh, how a brand kind of having the right policy or the right principles or the right approach, um, how can how that can help a brand kind of stay out of hot water to begin? with?
2: Yeah, sure, Mike. so our our view is that brand trust is fundamental. Uh, in the marketplace. Um, uh, you can say, you know, quite uh, easily that creating brand trust is, is hard and it takes time and takes a lot of eff- effort. Losing it can be in a moment in today's uh, world. Um, so we feel that, you know, the three C's as we call them, um, explicit consent, uh, consent is key, understanding or allowing the, 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 the consumer, the end user to understand what data is being captured why, you know, what the benefit is, being able to access maybe additional information if they, if they so wish to understand it better, that's an important consideration. Um, having the right content that's served up um, from that, uh, uh, that consent and, uh, and enabling that content to be served in the right contextual context. Um, so, that, um, so that the end user sees both a, a, a willingness, an agreement, to receive that information, the information is relevant to them, and the information comes to them via some relevant channel. Um, So those three Cs, we think, really bring together a user experience that is um, brand additive, that adds to the trust, adds to the value. I'm giving you something of value, you're giving me something back of value. Um, And that exchange, that mutual exchange, is is good for the long-term interests of the
1: brand. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You made a point uh, that I just that I just loved um, around this concept of brand trust. Uh, a lot of times we hear, you know, we we always bat around brand loyalty. Oh, you want to create loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. Um, but you make a really different point here, and I think it's an important distinction: brand trust. And it takes consumers some time to develop that trust, but the wrong move, and you can lose it in an instant. I, I, I love that point. And, and I think you, you kind of laid out, you know, how do you keep yourself from making th- that wrong move? Well, it, assuming that you're getting the consent the right way, then it's about being, you know, mindful and thoughtful about that trust or that equity you want to maintain when it comes to your content and it comes to the context that you deliver that content. in. I, I really like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that one from you, Steve, or, <laughs> for sure. <create> trust. <laughs> I, mean, truck.
2: I, I like yeah. that one. I mean, we live in a, in a world where, you know, quite frankly, there's no technological obstacles to data collection, right? It's infinite in, 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 all, in all intents and purposes. There's no technological obstacles to data storage. Data storage is infinite at this, at this point in our um, you know, society. And, and there's no real technological obstacles to sharing that data. And this is where people like Maggie, her in, in, input, as a as a As a team um, is so valuable, I think, um, and where partners like Julie's, you know Digital River are so important because each one brings a domain expertise that is valuable in those decisions that essentially uh, allow the complexities to be understood, um, decisions um, uh, options to be to be made. One of the things I like to point out too, and I work with a number of corporations right now that are looking at international expansion, uh, at least about half a dozen of them is um, you have a, a team uh, and the team vary can, uh, size can vary depending on the size of the organization and, 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 um, and their, their culture some, some organizations want a much more consensual approach than others. Um, but there, one thing I always stress is there needs to be a executive stakeholder because, as I want to pick up what Maggie said, I loved it, was she wants to be in the yes camp or the yes, but camp. What I've seen in my experience is always difficult choices comes down to some senior executive, be it um, a CEO or some other individual. He or she has to make a business decision and and, and weigh the balance of, as they say in in law, I think the balance of equities, right? The balance of, of risk to reward.
1: Yeah. I, and I really like what you were getting to there. It's, you know, it's about the importance of making sure that, you know, you have folks like Maggie from a, a legal standpoint, uh, folks like Julie from a compliance standpoint, uh, really with a seat at the table about some of these decisions. Mm-hmm. Julia, I'd, I'd love to come to you on this one a bit and say, you know, and, and I've worked with you in this capacity. I've got folks on my team who do. Um, you've kind of put together a compliance team that you've, kind of organized around, you know, different subject matter, uh, you know, within compliance. Uh, When you think about, you know, a brand that is trying to go out and and go global uh, in terms of their their e-commerce and and enter new markets, how have you thought about organizing that compliance kind of subject matter expertise and and how do you apply it uh, to these problems when they come in?
3: That's a great question um, because I feel like every day is sort of a, a new. Uh, we get a new set of problems to solve, um, which is really it's challenging and it's really fun. And this is this is kind of where our yes and comes in because we get uh, we get questions and clients that come to us and say, okay, we've got we've got this set of of, of products to sell, and we would like to sell them into. This, these set of countries. And so the place to start, I think, for, for any of this is really knowing that product, knowing what that product is, and you as the manufacturer knowing your product, understanding um, your, uh, your export control classification for whatever country you're selling, you're selling out of, um, and the things that go into that are, are components. So if you're selling apparel, for instance, and you're selling dresses, are your dresses made of cotton? Are they made of leather? Are they adorned with feathers? Are, are there any, you know, any classifications that you need to do based on what your product is made out of? And for electronics, for, for example, if you have an electronic device that has encryption what, uh, what technology went into making that? Is this controlled technology? And mm-hmm. understand, so understanding really um, what, the, what the legal basis is for exporting and if you need to, to, uh, to have any licenses or anything like that. And then taking that information and turning that into HTS codes, which will help you understand any regulations on the other side, on countries that you're importing into because uh, exporting a pair of pants from the United States can certainly, into the EU, can certainly look different than it does when you're exporting it into China. For instance, um, in China, you might have labeling requirements or packaging requirements um, that you don't have when you're exporting into the EU. So it's really knowing your product and where you're selling it.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting um, because I, I know I, I think a lot of brands, particularly those who have not gone direct in the past, um, and they've maybe you know gone entirely through resellers or retailers or a traditional distribution channel. In, in many ways, those distributors, those retailers, they they take care of a lot of those things for the brand, right? But now selling direct for the first time. You've got to think about that uh, those export classifications. You've got to think about who is actually importing those goods and what import um, you know regulations uh, could apply to them. You mentioned you know everything from consumer electronics, right? And if you're selling that into Europe, you're going to have to collect a recycling fee that's associated with it. Uh, and then at the same time, one of my favorites is you know you can't sell apparel that uses goose down into Canada. Right? Like, that, that's <laughs> like, that's Canada's very, they're, they're very particular about their goose down, uh, apparently. But it, it, it does go to show that really, no matter what you sell or how innocuous you may believe it to be, um, or how simple it may be to export out of your country, it's not necessarily easy to import it somewhere else. Is that, yes. is that fair to
3: say? very true and and we have we actually have a a team like you said our team is is organized around their the expertise and we look at um at these opportunities through all of these lenses including the laws of trade the laws of finance the laws of uh, commercial transactions which includes privacy and consumer protection Um, and and we have logistics experts we have uh, revenue accounting and tax experts as well that will help to flush out most of the the threshold questions that need to be answered before moving forward into an agreement.
1: Yeah, and thinking about that, thinking about how you you support the business side of things, and and Maggie, I'd love to come to you on this. Uh, Obviously, you're working with, with folks on the business side all the time in marketing and sales, Right, they may be coming to you with, with some kind of some kind of challenge. Um, you know, what kind of guidance would do you give somebody in, in your role about coaching the other parts of the business to help you help them? Uh, <laughs> that makes sense. I, I may I may have wound around a little bit there, but yeah, know. You know, someone in your role, what what can they do to help the business uh, kind of you know help themselves, so to speak?
0: Um, well I think one thing I was just it made me chuckle a bit because I used to say I was gonna have a t-shirt made that says I need actual facts to do my job. And so I, I think that's one piece on training the business, right? And like just training them to know kind of what facts you need each time. So like for instance, if I'm doing a contract, I want to see these facts on the front end. I don't want to have a call, you know, an invite on my calendar about a contract and I don't know the data i don't know the business purpose i don't know the geography or anything like that so I really have to have standard questions for contracts and then even the same thing with anything else right it's it, what are you trying to accomplish what are the data flows right where are they going in what where are your notices or where do you link to notices questions like that so really like helping them understand that this isn't a Maggie, just tell me what to do, and I'll do it one-off, um, that it's really, again, I think he said earlier, that partnership and collaboration on, I need to know their knowledge and what their knowledge of the facts and what they're trying to do to give good advice that's able to help the business try to do what they want to do, and of course, you know, Joey like said earlier, if I need to be the no police, I'll be the no police, but my goal is to not be the no police unless they absolutely have to be, and so to be able to be effective in doing that, I need to know the relevant facts and goals, and we need to work together to do that. I can't just give one black and white answer.
1: Right. Yeah, the, the and, and I think the other thing, you know, for folks who are in sales or marketing, you know, um, speaking as one of them myself, um, we're always in a hurry, right? We have a deal come along, we look, hey, end of quarter is coming up, I, I wanna get this thing closed. Right. Oh, crap. I need to take it to compliance. Right. But I think part of what you're saying is if I have if I make sure I've got the right information together and the right questions around that as I'm bringing it to you, that's going to help me with my speed problem. Right. Uh, Not only in terms of keeping my brand safe, but it's going to help me with that speed problem as well. For sure. And I think
0: Keith mentioned something earlier too about bringing us in, right, try to err on the side of bringing us in a little sooner. We can always tell you if it's too soon. And sometimes it is, right? Sometimes there's a little bit of a chicken and egg there of like, hey, I don't know enough facts. And we say we want to incorporate privacy by design at the outset and security by design. Sometimes you need a little bit more facts to be able to do that. But we can tell you that. And It's always easier, right? We're juggling all sorts of different things. I think most of the time in this kind of space, you're likely a pretty lean lean mighty team with a lot of different responsibilities and changing laws and requirements. And so we're all trying to balance and prioritize. So to the extent you can give us the information we need in advance, get us in a little bit sooner, and give us a sense of what your timing is, it can really help us juggle those priorities and help with your speed issue. And I know sometimes there are real fire drills, right? But I think a lot of times, a lot of fire drills are preventable if you know, everybody has the right information together and has some ownership of that, that you're, again, that's that partnership piece of where the business has the ownership too, and it's not just, hey, this compliance
1: issue is completely separate, and someone's going to tell me what to do, and I'm going to. Keith, what's your perspective there? You know, how how do you advise clients to kind of balance making sure that, you know, this opportunity is, is getting considered, or we're engaging with legal and compliance at the right step?
2: So, uh, you know, this boils down to what I would broadly call solution architecture. So when we're, when Born is asked to help a company um, look at, say, I- international expansion, we are called in to define a solution architecture. And, and this leads often to a concept we call GRA or Global Reference Architecture that has core functionality, core architecture, and then, in the terms of one of my clients, I love the, the the term Lego blocks" that you can kind of decouple, uncouple and and put back together. And what we try and do is create as much of that global reference architecture on you know strong global partners, say digital River, for example, that's you know looking forward they they are very close closely attuned to changes in the in, in the regulatory environments in various countries. Um, Sweden, elsewhere, localized or you know re- regional, uh, and have those individuals at the table so that we can create a solution architecture with the input of, you know, for example, legal, uh, Maggie's side, but also business, you know, the brand side, the product side, etc. And all of these things come into play in how we we formulate that that solution architecture. It it it, it is a it is a complex pro- process, but it's it's not you know. You know, terrible. It, it can be solved and it can be solved fairly rapidly if you have the right people in the process, input as and when needed at the right point in time.
1: Yeah, I really like that point. Um, and, and I think a lot of folks, we think about solution architecture and we're almost always exclusively thinking about the technology or the technologies involved. Now, how do we get these APIs talking to each other? How do we make this integration happen? Uh, You made that really great point earlier, I think, that, you know, from a technology standpoint, there really aren't very many limitations in terms of data that I can collect, data that I can store, how I can process it, how I can report against it or or gather intelligence from it. Uh, But there are harder requirements around things like import and export, data privacy, regulatory control. And... Those items are just as important a part of your solution as those technology components. Mm-hmm. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, very much. And it's interesting, you know, when, when those comments were being made, I was thinking about something that Born is seeing quite significant rise in interest right now is, is marketplaces. So if you think about a marketplace, you know the, the typical ones are, of course, Amazon and Alibaba and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what's happened is technology has become very democratized. Uh, it is you know still um, somewhat complex, but you're now uh, able to um, access um, technologies that will allow you to create a marketplace. And what we're seeing is is brands that have relevance in their marketplace. That have um, like a sustainable brand advantage. Best Buy is an example. There's others, are taking advantage of this this democratized technology to create marketplaces where third-party um, um, vendors are able to come on to that that marketplace that they that the the, the brand owner manages and controls and sell complement complementary services and, and products. This actually is is we see it as a great tool for. Um, uh, end user customer engagement, creating more value, valuable engagements with your customers over time, longer lasting, um, um, being able to, you know, be a, a great business driver for for, for your organization and, and your third parties, but it brings with it a, some challenges, especially as you just pointed out, you know, legal requirements, regulatory requirements. What if, these, what if this is a transnational marketplace? Um, What if it's uh, areas of of, uh, regulation or where an outcome might be somewhat um, um, catastrophic for the uh, the brand reputation, say, uh, um, aerospace or or another area? So it it has become a really big area of interest. And one, again, emphasizes uh, or highlights all of these um, various, um, uh, the the need for these various points of view and, and expertise to be brought to the table to do it right.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, uh, the, the point you made there and the, the way that the technology trends, um, a lot of times those changes happen quickly, opportunities rise up quickly, particular, uh, particularly in our, our kind of present environment uh, with the pandemic, uh, but as, as easy as it is to chase that opportunity uh, and to see the real business value in it, making sure that the, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed like you said, even if it's, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm putting my product up over here. Well, you might have to have disclosures that you make with that product. And those disclosures might have to be there in a, a checkout process that a consumer consents to. And you have to have the right capabilities uh, inside your business to kind of respond to that need. So uh, we're coming up on time. And, and I really appreciate uh, all of our panelists joining us today. I'd love to hear before we go kind of your your last take, if you had to in in 30 seconds or so, uh, give the audience one takeaway uh, that they should really think about uh, as it relates to compliance and growing their business globally um, through e-commerce, what would that be? And Julie, I'll start with you.
3: I would say that that e-commerce is a very complex environment. Um, You know, as we've said a couple of times, you have to look at it through the laws of trade, the laws of sale, the laws of tax, and the laws of, um, of commercial transactions, which includes privacy and consumer protection. So really having the, the, right, the right consultant, the right partner to, to help you do the, all of those things. And it doesn't matter what you're selling or where you're selling it, whether you're doing it um, all, all within the United States or globally having the right partner to understand not only the current regulatory environment but the regulatory environment that is on the horizon would be helpful
1: yeah so in other words don't try to build all the you need to build some of this expertise yourself but don't try to do it all work with the folks uh, you know whether it's a, a service provider or a service provider a, a consultant or someone that's bringing a solution to the table that that has this kind of uh, capability set Maggie, let's, let's go over to you for your final take.
0: So I would echo at that point that Julie just made. Um, and then I would add to that, um, right, this is complicated stuff, when don't let the perfect be the enemy of the really good, the very good or the good. And that this stuff, this is a marathon, it's not a one and done sprint, right? These laws are continuing to grow and evolve over time. And right, this is an ongoing exercise that we right. all have to work together to solve for.
1: Yeah, so it, it, to your point, it builds off of what Julie said, you know, you need to develop some capability and competency around this. You need to be able to deal with it, put the right, uh, and put the right team in place. But you also need to realize that, that this, this is the new normal, right? And, and as we continue to kind of sell online, these things aren't going away. Uh, they're going to get broader and, and in some ways, maybe more complex and continue to represent challenges for us. Uh, and Keith, why don't you take us home with with your final thoughts?
2: <laughs> I'll try. So, from a digital transformation agency perspective, uh, I would say um, start with user experience. That is your um, um, your core. To ensure that um, your user experience is as um, optimal optimized as possible, that that is what I would start with. Understanding that well. I would then say that business strategy, lead technology decisions, not vice versa, absolutely bedrock principle, and then bring the right people and the right partners to the table to manage the, the complexities of uh, executing on those.
1: That's great, great. we'll guide you thank through you. tough times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so thank you very much, Maggie and, and Keith and, and Julie. Uh, and thanks to our listeners for joining us. Thanks again to Bourne Group for being our promotional partner. Uh, our next live virtual event is September 9th and is part of our Commerce Passport series. The topic is how to get fulfillment infrastructure you can count on. Uh, very timely as we navigate a lot of disruption in how brands are getting their products to customers. Uh, you can register for that at digitalriver.com passport which is also where you can access any of our live events on demand. Uh, thanks again, everyone, and have a great rest of your day.
0: You've been listening to a special edition of Commerce Connect presented by Digital River, part of a series of live virtual events and podcasts designed to help you grow your global e-commerce business. Find out how you can attend a live virtual commerce passport event at digitalriver.com passport.